This is Money Guide with Mary Stirk from Stirk Financial Services. Now, here's Mary Stirk. Welcome to Money Guide with Mary Stirk, and today we're talking about the most Googled financial questions. And with me today, I have financial planner Byron Posma. And Byron, you know, when we talk about the most Googled financial questions, it kind of makes you wonder, what did we do before Google? Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> probably uh, encyclopedias or things of that nature. But uh, yeah, the Google, Google is quite a, it's a great tool to use. Oh, absolutely. And you know, jobs that no longer exist, things like encyclopedia salesmen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It used to be somebody's entire job. And now we just ask the Google. That's right. You know, I find myself in just normal conversation very frequently saying, oh, well, let's just Google it. Because you come up with some random question and then there you go. You have an easy way to just go ahead and figure out an answer. It really is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, not all of the time is it accurate, but you at least can find some answers out there. Well, that's true. You have to take <laughs> it with a with a grain of salt. And one thing, especially with financial situations, is that everybody's is different. Right. And what might sound good on Google may not be the right thing for yourself. Yeah, and that's a very, very good point. So just because an answer exists out there, you do have to filter it through your own personal viewfinder to see how that impacts you and if the answer you're finding actually makes sense. So some of the most Googled financial questions that are out there center around taxes, which is a timely topic since we're kind of getting ready to move into tax season here. Yep. Now, while we are not tax advisors or CPAs, we do work with a lot of people concerning tax management of their investment strategies and things like that. So our focus around taxes most of the time is surrounding how do you keep more of your own money and avoid the tax bite that's out there to the extent that you legally can. That's right. (laughs) That's the key. It's not necessarily how much you make, but how much you get to keep. Right. So here, this is the single most Googled financial question that we could find when it comes to taxes is, what happens if I file after the tax deadline? (laughs) Oops. Hopefully you have uh, asked for an extension. Yes, because that's the answer. If you ask for an extension, then you are going to be okay with that. But if you haven't done that, you could owe the IRS fines and interest. Now, even with filing an extension, that doesn't mean you might avoid some of the interest, but you're likely to avoid some of the fines. Right. And keep in mind that interest is ticking too. So if you miss the deadline, try to miss it by not very much. Right. Now, the the other corresponding question that frequently comes with that is, well, are there any benefits to actually filing early? And the answer to that can kind of depend on your situation. If you're getting a big tax refund, absolutely, you're going to get your money back sooner. So that's definitely a benefit of filing early. That's right. And it's also a scheduling thing, too, because, Mm -hmm. you know, the closer we get to April 15, the busier CPAs, tax preparers are. And so it's, it's a lot easier to get in if you start early. Exactly. Now, the next major Googled question that we see out there about taxes is, what the heck's the difference between an exemption 
and a deduction and a credit and things like that. It gets just murky for people to understand what that means. So here's the thing, exemptions and deductions pretty much work the same way. What they do is they reduce the total of your taxable income, which lowers your tax bill. There's just less money there that is um, appropriate for them to tax you on, okay? A credit though works differently. A credit is basically a straight up discount that you're gonna get on your tax bill. So if you owed $1,000 in taxes, but you had a $500 tax credit, it means that now you only owe $500 in taxes. So a credit is basically the actual discount. It comes right off the amount of taxes you owe. So if you're looking at those three areas, the credits are the best. They're the ones that come sure. right from your tax bill. Right. They are what are frequently considered to be the most valuable of those things. Okay. So another big question is that I like to keep my finances separate from my spouse. So should I be filing married, filing separately, or should we file jointly? And the answer to that really is this. It really doesn't matter whether you segregate your money, your bank accounts, your investments, your cash flow. It's going to depend on your overall situation, whether or not you want to file married jointly or married separately. So you might miss out on some advantages if you're not doing the joint filing, but you might also avoid certain taxes if you do it separately. So the it depends answer is is the right answer. That's right. It's important to uh, probably have your tax preparer look at that for you. Right. They should be able to run it both ways and see where your advantage is. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, next biggest Googled question about taxes is, what receipts should I be saving throughout the year so I can write them off? We all like our write-offs, don't we? That's that's a great <laughs> word, write-off. All right, so let's back up the bus just a second here and define this. When people talk about writing off things for tax purposes, what they generally mean is they're deducting that expense from their taxable income. And how you do that is going to be up to you. And with the more recent tax law changes, these different write-offs, if they're not enormous, have basically become less valuable. That's right. The standard deduction was raised significantly, mm -hmm. I think, for the uh, 2018 tax year. And uh, so that that is something that probably less people itemize their deductions than days gone by. Exactly. And that was actually the intent of part of the reason they did that was to simplify the entire tax system and have less people itemize. So unless your itemizations are above your standard deduction, which for married couples is, you know, above $24,000, then you are not going to itemize. You'll just take that standard deduction, in which case you don't need to save anything throughout the year to write that off. Right. But if you are going to itemize, then you should keep written proof of anything that you are actually going to quote unquote write off. And it has to be a legitimate reason. You can't just decide you're going to write something off. There usually has to be an appropriate business purpose associated with such things. One other thing, too, is that even if you do not itemize your deductions, there may be some things that you can still use mm -hmm. as deductions. For instance, student loan interest, uh, tuition, uh, moving expenses, uh, teachers have 
can itemize some supplies that they get. Mm -hmm. So there are some things that even though you might take the standard deduction, you can still itemize them. And charitable pieces are a big piece of that too. If you're going to itemize, that might be a year where you boost up your charitable donations that year. Maybe do, if you're going to give to say your church at the beginning of the year, maybe you also give next year's at the end of the year and the year you're going to itemize because you're going to be able to use that deduction at a higher level. So those kind of things all affect what you might want to be thinking about keeping in terms of receipts, documentation, and things like that. All right, next big Googled question is this. I'm a freelancer, and none of the taxes are being withheld from my paycheck, so what am I supposed to do? So if you're someone that isn't having taxes directly withheld from your paycheck, that doesn't mean you don't have to pay taxes. (laughs) That's right. You better be prepared for it. And one of the things folks do is to keep savings accounts particularly set up for their taxes. Exactly. I normally recommend that someone who has that situation, number one, visit with their accountant about whether or not they should be paying quarterly tax estimates because that may be something they should be doing. And number two, however they are getting paid from whatever their freelance or self-employed gig is, that as soon as they get paid, they automatically move a certain percentage of it to a savings that is used nothing except for tax savings. Now, that tax savings account then could be used to pay your quarterly estimates or is there for you at the end of the year. But whatever you think your tax bracket is going to be for your federal and state taxes is what you should be shifting over to that savings account immediately when you get paid. That's right. You basically have to simulate your own tax withholdings. Kind of have to do it yourself. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. All right. So the last big Googled question that I want to talk about when it comes to taxes is this. If I get audited, what happens? (laughs) Start praying really hard. Ah, there you go. All right. If you get audited, there are a number of things to be aware of. Now, here's one thing, though, that the IRS um, has said, that if you make less than $200,000, there's only a 1 in 98 chance you could be audited. So for those of you who are worrying about that audit, a lot of it does trigger off of the income level that you have. So there are a number of different audit triggers that are out there that might make them look a little bit funny. So if you have massive deductions, or if you go negative on income, or if you are someone who has a really high income and is showing so many deductions that you really get to a very, very low tax bracket, some of those things could be red flags. Um, Some of them are random audits. And so you're not going to be able to, you know, know exactly what red flag did. They're just random. But if you do get audited, then most likely it's going to be conducted by mail. And I don't think a lot of people know that. Yep. So only one in five audits involve an auditor showing up to your business or home or requiring you to go to the IRS office. So most of the time in an audit, the IRS is just going to ask for backup documentation. Right. Now, my CPA says, if you ever get audited, just plan to get out your checkbook. (laughs) (laughs) 
and that's because I run a significant business. Yep. And so if that's the case, then I guess I am just going to expect that maybe there's going to be some cost involved in it. But I also think that if you want to avoid audit, don't screw around with your taxes. Like pay what you're supposed to pay and don't try to hide things from the IRS. And then if you have an audit, you can rest easy that you had the best good faith efforts involved in doing the right thing. And if you do have to get out your checkbook, maybe it's just to write a very small check because of a legitimate accident. Hopefully it is a small check, but it does does come down often to the paperwork that you can that you can use to prove what you've done. Yes. Now, if you find that you made a mistake in your taxes after you filed them, the very best strategy is that you should just admit it, let the IRS know, file an amended return, and pay what you need to pay. If you find a mistake and it's uncovered later that you knew about it, then that starts to walk the line looking like evasion. <laughs> We don't like that. That's a bad deal. That's a very bad word. That's right. Congratulations to Mary Stirk for being named the 2020 Forbes Best in State Wealth Advisors list for the third year running. Welcome back to Money Guide with Mary Stirk, and today we're talking about the most Googled financial questions. Now, one of the kind of fun things that we did was we kind of looked up what's the most Googled questions around different areas, and it's really kind of super interesting. So in the state of Iowa, childcare, questions about childcare is the most Googled topic. That's kind of interesting. In Nebraska, the most Googled questions surround college planning. And in South Dakota, the most common questions around income taxes, which I find to be kind of fascinating since South Dakota doesn't have any state income tax. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So here's the thing is like when it comes down to it, 23 of our states in the United States, the top questions that people Googled were on income taxes, which is why we spent the first part of the show on that. But then in descending order, 10 other states' most common questions were surrounding insurance, nine states were around mortgages, four states were around college, and then the rest of them were kind of on an assortment of other interesting topics. So so let's go ahead, since the next broadest area of questions was about insurance, then let's go ahead and answer those. And I thought this was a really interesting question, but this is one of the most Googled insurance questions out there is, does my credit score affect my insurance premium? You would think that it would be more, am I a good driver or... or <laughs> Do or, I need or, this insurance? Yeah, or, or things like that. <laughs> but But one of the things they're looking for is people who don't fill out their or keep their policies because of non-payment of premiums. Mm-hmm. So, so that does make sense that your credit score is going to be a big part of what an insurance company is going to look at. Right. And the reality is your credit score can and usually does affect your premium. So according to some different regulatory, regulatory associations, there's a direct correlation between credit scores and individuals getting into accidents, as well as credit scores and cancellations of policies due to non-payment. So therefore, usually your premiums are higher if you have a low credit score. So there you go. Good information to know. 
It's kind of interesting that people with good credit scores apparently are better drivers. <laughs> there you go. Maybe it's just like a natural responsibility of having their lives in order. Probably. Yeah. yeah, probably. The next most Googled question that we found was, every time I rent a car, I'm asked if I'd like to purchase rental car insurance coverage. Is this something I need or does my insurance actually cover it? Well, this is another one of those it depends kind of answers. Mm -hmm. It depends on the insurance coverage that you have. Sometimes you might get it also off of credit cards, Mm -hmm. too. But that's something you should talk with your insurance agent about. There you go. So just check with your own policy to find out if you're covered and if you need to spend the additional money on rental car insurance. All right. This next one is kind of a unique question. I was actually really surprised that this is another big Googled question. If my garage burns down and my car is in the garage, is my car covered under my homeowner's insurance or under my auto insurance? Now, again, all policies might do this a little differently, but the typical consensus is your homeowner's insurance does not typically cover the loss of your car, even if it was in, quote unquote, your house. Right. And one of the things is usually vehicles are excluded as property under mm-hmm. your homeowner's coverage. And and yeah, th- this sounds kind of makes sense. It's in the garage, but but it, they homeowner's coverage does not cover vehicles that are on the road and they have issues there. So that's right. probably part of the thinking there. Now, if you have comprehensive coverage on your vehicle, your auto insurance might cover it because that is designed to cover physical damage on your vehicles. So that's where you might go to look for coverage if you actually had a house fire and your car burned up with your house. All right, the next most Googled question when it comes to insurance is, should I buy long-term care insurance? And boy, that is a question that we get asked a lot. Right. Yeah. And and the should I buy long-term care insurance, I think that really is an it depends answer too. Sure. But I also think there's some financial parameters that you can consider to help decide if you really should spend a lot of time investigating this. So now there's lifestyle parameters like what is it that you're trying to protect or who is it that you're trying to protect and what are the quality of life issues you want if you need, you know, need chronic care or something like that. But on the financial side, here's the parameters that we generally look to for whether or not you should buy long-term care insurance. If you have under $300,000 worth of investment assets that are supposed to last you throughout your retirement, you're depending on those to be used, we would question whether or not you should buy that insurance because the amount of the premium is likely to utilize such a large percentage of your retirement assets over time, it might not be a justifiable spend. Right. So there's one of the big issues that you have. But likewise, on the top side... If you have more than $3 million of retirement assets, you also might question whether or not you need coverage because the reality is you probably have enough money to self-fund your stay. Now, you may not want to use your money that way, (laughs) but you also can use your money that way. But Byron, it's really the people in the middle that need to consider that kind of coverage. And another issue too, Mary, is the age of the folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kind of consider the sweet spot as far as buying long-term care insurance between ages 50 to 65 
if you buy before then, you're probably going to be paying premiums too long. Right. And if you buy after that, uh, it's going to be maybe too expensive. So those are some things we look at also. So if you're wondering, should you be considering long-term care insurance, we think that the people who are most likely to consider it are going to be have assets between 300000 and $3 million and be between the ages of 50 to 65. And if that's you, then might be a good idea to take a look at it. All right, the next question then from an insurance perspective that is very frequently Googled is, do I still need life insurance? And I think that that's a really good question. Again, it's an it's depends. Right. But the reality is that that life insurance kind of goes in phases through people's lives. So Byron, share with listeners, what's the first phase? Well, the first phase is for younger couples that have children at at home. Mm -hmm. And the protection basically there is for in case of a premature death, that there's a lot of income loss involved if somebody passes away at an early age. And so that's one of the key factors that you look at for young folks with life insurance. So phase one of life insurance, not to be crude when I say this, but it's really about protecting widows and children. Yes. That's the reality. Now, the second phase is more in your middle years. And once your children are kind of grown and gone and your debt levels might be a little bit less, the second phase is really about protecting your spouse during their retirement So maybe you haven't quite built up enough retirement nest egg to comfortably retire on, but if one of you passed away prematurely then, your spouse might not have the comfortable retirement that you've been dreaming about. Right. And then the last phase is really about legacy planning. Yes. You could look at what you might want to leave for your children. Yep. Children, charities, things like that. What's the financial impact you want to leave behind when you're no longer here? Now, some people say nothing. (laughs) And if that's the case, you probably don't still need that life insurance. (laughs) Right. I I want to spend my last dollar on the day that I die kind of an attitude. Yeah. And boy, if we could figure out how to predict that down to the penny, (laughs) we would be the most sought after financial planners in the world. (laughs) That's right. So life insurance is in phases, whatever phase of life you're in, that answer is personal depending on what you're trying to protect and who you're trying to protect. Is it widows? Is it children? Is it spouses? Is it, you know, charitable intent, things like that? And then what's your debt levels along the way? You know, are you trying to clear debt for somebody that's still alive? Or if you pass away and that debt will be cleared by the sale of the asset, Maybe you don't need the insurance to cover that anymore. Right. And a lot of insurance companies will allow you maybe to drop down the limits on your life insurance too, which may be more in line with your needs at the time as you age. Yeah. So because your needs for life insurance shift along your lifetime, so do the types of insurance that are most appropriate for you. And the amounts of insurance that you need. And so good financial planning is really going to look at your current situation and help you isolate what is it you're trying to protect with the insurance and what's the appropriate amount and type and length of coverage to sufficiently help you protect those goals. All right, so we've talked about some of the most googled financial questions in the top two areas in the united states that are being googled out there 
And so thanks to uh, the uh, wealthmanagement.com survey that allowed us to see what people are asking questions about, it basically comes down to income taxes and insurance. (laughs) Murky subjects for a lot of people. So we hope this has helped shed some light on that for you. And we hope that this has added some value as you have your own questions that you're pondering. And we thank you for listening to Money Guide with Mary Stirk. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of your audio provider and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities or services mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can ensure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should only be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Securities and investment advisory services are offered through Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC. Insurance offered through Sterk Financial Services, which is not affiliated with Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated. Neither Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated nor its representatives provide tax or legal advice. You should consult a qualified attorney or tax professional to answer your specific questions. Stirk Financial Services is located at 350 Oak Tree Lane, Suite 150, Dakota Dune, South Dakota, 57049, and can be reached at 605-217-3555. Forbes' Best in State Wealth Advisors list includes 10 recipients per state. The award is based on qualitative and quantitative data. Rating thousands of wealth advisors with a minimum of seven years of experience and weighing factors like revenue trends, assets under management, compliance records, industry experience, and best practices. The award is not based on portfolio performance or client reviews. There is no fee in exchange for rankings. Third-party rankings and recognitions are no guarantee of future investment success and do not ensure that a client or prospective client will experience a higher level of performance or results. These ratings should not be construed as an endorsement of the advisor by any client nor are they representative of any one client's evaluation. 